Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. So excited to have one of our, gosh, I think most repeat offender guests on the podcast, Dr. Gary Forsman, MD of middlepathmedicine.com. He's also on the uh, doctor on my book, uh, the Paleo Thyroid Solution, or I should say our book, and has been on our podcast many times. We've done a breast health series. We've talked about low-dose naltrexone, coronary arteries disease screening, and hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism and so much more. So you can always just uh, type Gary Forsman and Primal Blueprint Podcast and all those episodes should pop up. Thank you so much for coming back on. How are you? Oh, it's wonderful to be here and I'm doing great. Thank you. So we're going to talk all about COVID-19 today and the coronavirus. So many confusing, conflicting viewpoints, science, um, fears, some false, some, some reality um, right. I'm a layman person, so I'm going to be asking you questions just like the uneducated public. <laughs> um, let's start here. So there's lots of novel coronaviruses, correct? Tell us about what novel means, what, what this virus means versus a virus like the flu and why it's different. Well, there's, there's four coronaviruses that are just normally circulating around. And I'm talking about just in humans now, folks, there's many, many more than that in other animal species. And so, but there's four, uh, you know, consider the normal coronaviruses that kind of fall into the general cold category, uh, common cold uh, category. And there's been three novel, not a lot, but three novel coronaviruses. There's two that cause a severe acute respiratory syndrome. So this is the second in that category. And there's another one that was from the, called the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is a little bit different because it's a different uh, uh, permutation of this virus. So what we have in, in the official name of the virus, which is SARS-CoV-2, is just the second novel coronavirus to cause severe acute respiratory syndrome. Um, and so the official name of the virus is SARS-CoV-2. And the disease it caused is what everybody is calling, including me, COVID-19, which stands for the Coronavirus Infectious Disease of 2019. Um, so COVID-19 is the name of the disease it causes. SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. It's not truly interchangeable, but most of us are using those somewhat interchangeably because we know what we're talking about. So, and this is one that jumped from animals to humans. Correct. The three novel coronaviruses that we've talked about, SARS-CoV-1 originally occurred in the early 2000s. I think it was 2001 to 2003. Um, and that was jumping from bats to uh, civic cats to humans. Uh, the MERS epidemic was uh, happening from bats to camels to people. And this one is theorized to be from bats to pangolins to, to humans um, is the most likely epidemiology, even though that's not been set in, in stone. But the... Um, okay, you know, so let's just... Bats are freaking... What? Like, just like bats are just like... How, how are bats? The, you know, I mean, they're causing just, a bunch of problems. <laughs> They're just driving us batty. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, so, yes, they carry um, many viruses that can that can easily mutate and affect other species. They obviously have close interaction with other species. And most people know the Wuhan province, the animal markets that are there that to a Westerner seem abhorrent. Um, they do. Um, even to me, when you see the videos of what's happening with all the different animal species being sold in the markets, which is, again, normal in their culture, um, seems bizarre to us. But there is an easy way to understand how transfection, meaning infection from one species to another, might occur more easily in a market that has so close uh, um, uh, contact of so many species. So the, very, so the bat like bites, does the bat bite the pangolin and then it goes to humans? It, is that how it gets transferred from the bat? 
The idea is just the, the close proximity, but no, these aren't usually vampire bats or anything else. These are usually insect-eating bats, et cetera, and things like that. So it's just that it's the close proximity. And of course, with people eating the bat soups and all the different things that they do, there's just a, a question in terms of how, you know, uh, but for the most part, we're understanding that the coronavirus needs a an intermediate host before it will infect humans. And so, um, and so it's just a close proximity thing. Okay. And so, so, um, okay, so now we are where we are. It already happened, woulda, coulda, shouldas. Okay, but, but now we're here. Everyone is very afraid. Um, let's talk about a few things we've learned or that are still confusing about the coronavirus. I know that the last time I heard you talk, you weren't exactly sure perhaps why men seem to be more affected by this? Is that still the case in the statistics that men are more prone to being affected negatively? Yes. And so, and can, I, I'm going to backdrop it very briefly sure. to the virus. As you know, that there's many people feel that this uh, virus was uh, um, somehow experimented in a lab in Wuhan province and that it's possibly a bioweapon. I do not know for sure whether it is or is not. What I want everybody to know is the future will determine how much you know, where this virus actually came from. It is possible that this was experimented in a lab and somehow escaped into the population. It actually is possible. However, I don't think that's the best theory. It's not probable, maybe. It yeah. That it just is part of nature now. So no matter how it started, it's just part of nature and we have to deal with it as being part of nature. Okay. Um, and so... I think most people have heard that the virus is considered, you know, to be, uh, you know, fairly benign to people without comorbid conditions. And that takes us to your question, by the way. Um, the, the number one risk factor for severity of illness with coronavirus is almost everybody's heard, whether it's nursing homes or daycares or whatever else, is being over 75 years of age. Um, that's the number one risk factor by far. Um, but right behind that would be this thing that there's far more severe illness in men. 60 to 70 percent of the severe illnesses and or deaths are occurring in men versus women. And I'm honestly, still even looking at research over the weekend, I'm not exactly sure why that is. It is not a higher rate of smoking. It is not a higher rate of comorbid conditions. There seems to be something about um, men that, that are increasing the risk of severity of illness. Um, so, uh, but no, I haven't got that. I worked out. I don't know why. I don't think anybody knows why. Okay. And then there's also a great risk for people with metabolic dysfunction, right? You know, obesity type two, they are falling prey to this as well more than others or obesity, type two diabetes, hypertension itself, cardiovascular disease itself. And these are all markers of insulin resistance. So, and this kind of goes back to, you know, our, if there is one thing everybody could do, it would be to keep their carbohydrates down in their diet, regular exercise, stress management, all the things, uh, healthy sleep practices, all the things that reduce circulating insulin levels, which is probably every bit as important as keeping down, down their blood sugar. Uh, there's uh, studies, animal studies, in um, using ketogenic diets showing that there's a boost to immune system function by going to ketogenic even. Okay, so, uh, but in a, you know, if, if we've talked about this, that I think, Elle, is that, you know, the predictions were by 2030, Americans are going to be 25% morbidly obese, 25% obese, 25% overweight, and we'll only have 25% of Americans at normal or underweight, by the way. Um, and so this epidemic of insulin resistance, which can manifest as obesity, a risk factor, hypertension, a risk factor, diabetes, a risk factor. So the underlying problem is this cardiometabolic dysfunction known as insulin resistance and hyperglycemia. And that's if you were to do anything to prevent severity of illness, and when I say that, it doesn't mean you won't catch the illness, but severity of illness, it would be to correct that metabolic dysfunction. And just, and to, and just to highlight that for everybody, I'm assuming uh, that this is because those conditions, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, what, those are all such inflammatory states is, so that what, it's already yeah. creating a, an interesting, like, easy soup for this virus to go in and, and wreak havoc versus not having the inflammation there? Is that the main underlying sort of situation? Right, because that's the idea is that there's going to be an increased inflammatory response to the virus. And if you're already in an inflamed state, that hyperimmune response is the issue. So the hyperimmune response will become part of the issue. Okay, when you now, say hyperimmune response, now we've I've heard about this a little bit, and 
they'll say like, oh, you know, there's like a cytokine storm. Cytokine storm. Right. So, expl- everybody's so ex- cytokine storm. Right. So explain this. So, so is that, be a movie. so I, um, I, I kind of look at this in layman's terms, like, Hey, your immune system's already kind of active because you're in this state of inflammation. And if now you've introduced a virus it what is overactive and that's bad to be overactive, one would think it would be logical for it to be good to be overactive because then it's going to be fighting this shiz. So give me that, you know, give us an understanding of, of that. This is actually quite complicated, but to keep it relatively simple, the problem would be that the type of inflammation associated with the insulin resistant conditions actually tends, when it's upregulated, tends to hurt your lungs more and kidneys and other t- organ systems more so than it hurts the virus. So it's a it's a in form of inflammation that is more effective at hurting you than hurting the virus. And so uh, so no, it's not a good form of inflammation that we're upregulating. So we need, that's why in all of in, in internal medicine, integrative medicine, functional medicine, we talk about immunomodulation, appropriate cytokines, because you need cytokines, um, to, to fight this, uh, virus. We need these things, of course. So I can't emphasize enough is that yes, inflammation is, is life-saving. <laughs> so you can't heal without inflammation. You can't heal a wound without inflammation. You actually can't re- recover from a disease without inflammation. However, that the cytokine, which means um, uh, cellular mediators of inflammation, cellular mediators of healing, um, just have to be extraordinarily well-regulated. So when we get to the treatment things, why I talk about melatonin, vitamin Ds, is there some of the greatest immunomodulators, regulators of cytokine storms that have ever existed, and why we want to work with our own system to deal with this virus as compared to always looking for things to kill like the virus, because that's, you know, we talk about adolescent reductionistic male medicine, um, we're always looking to kill things. And and it's understandable. We just want to kill this virus, but all we have to do is boost our own immune system function. That's kind of a more, um, you know, feminine approach, build the fort, so to speak, uh, terrain-based medicine. But that's what we need to do primarily is balance our own systems. And then this will be just another virus that educates our immune system. And in the long term, will provide us with some un- unknown benefit, usually cancer prevention or something else. So uh, that we don't live in fear of this virus. We just use this time to boost our own health, which Wow, what a great outcome that would be. And then when we boost our own health, we boost the health of the environment and other people around us. And uh, we we practice loving kindness. So there's so many gifts that this virus could give to us uh, um, if we just would listen to the teacher, not be in fear, okay, which is such an important thing. Fear downregulates our brain function. We don't need that right now. Um, and so, and we look at ways where we can build our own system and also be kind to other people, social distancing, wearing masks, et cetera. Um, and there'll be so many gifts from this virus, even though this, this is a very tough time. And I'm not um, for all of you out there who have a business that's been closed because of social distancing, you have uh, all, utmost empathy from me. Um, but this is just a time where we need to take care of other people. And and this is a great chance for us to learn those things and improve our metabolic health. Because remember where we started with your question was what are the risk factors for having more severe illness? And if we can just work on one thing, it would actually be the things we always talk about for insulin resistance. This is like a a broken record for our our listeners out there. What are the things that improve insulin resistance? Healthy sleep, which most people actually require eight to nine hours of sleep a night. Healthy exercise, and that involves all level of exercise, both yogic fitness, aerobic fitness, and resistance fitness. Um, And of course, a healthy whole food diet, paleo type diet, um, even bordering on on going to ketogenic if we feel like we our metabolic health needs that. Um, And so, and of course, stress management, which is the thing that people seem to get the least of because it's meditative practices, stress unloading, and stress unloading is relatively easy because, you know, most people aren't having to work as much. So they just have to find a way to be in this world where they don't identify themselves with their jobs, et cetera. So, um, so many gifts could come from this virus. Let me ask you a question. So about this cytokine storm or like, you know, this immune system, like, okay, uh, okay. So here's a, like layman's terms questions. I've seen people post this thing, uh, which is, all right, Hey, is there such a thing as like doing too much to boost your immune system? That would be harmful. Is that even a thing? Great question. And, and the answer is a misunderstanding because 
uh, in Western medicine, we only can think of immunosuppressants or immune boosting, and you know, there's no no in between area. Where truly in herbal medicine, it's about immunomodulation. Immunomodulation means immune system regulating. So even though even when I talk about the steroid hormone that we accidentally call vitamin D, it's an immunomodulator, meaning it's helpful at you know boosting certain types of immunity, downregulating other types of immunity, helping with the the um, the natural host defense system, um, the they're called the antimicrobial peptides. At the same time, helping your body downregulate excess inflammation. So the mistake that people are hearing out there, like the people said, don't take vitamin D. One of the, would be one of the biggest mistakes ever, by the way. Um, or vitamin A, again, probably right behind that. Um, or elderberry. All those things are a misunderstanding of how herbal medicines work, which they work with the system to help with immunomodulation. Okay, not just immune boosting, even though that's primarily how most people look at it. So if you think immune boosting, because it makes sense, right? You say, oh, immune boosting. I hear hyperimmune response is bad. Oops, I shouldn't do those things. Right. And then you've fallen prey to misinformation or partial information, which is these these herbs and supplements we talk about are immune modulators, not immune boosters. Um, they sell better to the world by saying immune booster, by the way. Got it. Okay. So, all right. Before we get into all of the stuff about vaccination with this potential vaccination down the road or any of this stuff. Let's talk first about what you would suggest people do now, or what are some things we can think about to include into our life regularly at this moment. And I don't mean like, okay, because I'll ask you two, it'll be two part one. Hi, what can we do like every day to just keep our immune system strong other than the stuff we've talked about, like, and I'm talking supplements. And then my right. second part would be like, okay, we're doing that. But now I got to get on a plane to go somewhere. Do I do something extra? Yeah. Um, okay, right. so let's talk about like what we can do every day. Vitamin D. Okay, assuming our vitamin D's are normal, like mine is normal right now. Should mm -hmm. I just still be taking 5000 IU? of D3 every day? Do I need to do way more than that just for regular, like, let me be protective as much as possible for this virus? Right. And so um, backtracking a little bit and just, a, you know, I know I can no, digress. No, go for it. Um, but please, everybody, the number one things we can do are the things we talked about already. Lifestyle, lifestyle, and lifestyle. Stress management, healthy exercise, whole food diet, and sleep. Okay. Um, now, many people who do those things think, well, I shouldn't need any supplements because I do all these things well. That would also be a mistake because actually supplements work best in the people who are doing those things. Okay. Um, and so, uh, and Which, the by the way, I, just, I, I digress. That reminds me of a story you told me a while back where someone came to you and they had like colon cancer. They hadn't gone to the doctor in like three, four years. And they're like, but I'm a vegan meditator. Like, how is it? <laughs> and you were like, that's not necessarily enough. Yeah, to, like, you still exactly. have to go to the doctor once a year, you know? So yeah. Okay. So in line with that, continue. <laughs> So, so, so please people, the supplements work best when people actually are doing the lifestyle things. Cause no, nobody's saying take vitamin D and eat Twinkies. Okay. Cause I think the Twinkies will counteract any vitamin D you're taking. And I know your audience are not Twinkie eaters uh, anyways, but, um, so, so anyways, going back to the, so the number one supplement we talk about is, is vitamin D, which once again is a steroid hormone. We take vitamin D3 in conjunction with a vitamin K2, which is also another fat soluble really a hormone, but a vitamin that people talk about. Why is that? Because from the long-term perspective, K2 and D3 work together, K2 um, to prevent calcific inflammation. That's our whole cardiovascular disease talk, so we don't need to go there. K2 also helps with the absorption of vitamin T, D, the management of minerals in the body. Um, so usually K2, specifically MK7, 180 micrograms a day, dosages can vary, but that's a good starting dosage. The dosage of D3 is whatever it takes to get your blood levels into the 70 to 90 range. That's in American labs. And so, and that's usually 5,000 to 10,000 units per day of vitamin D. Okay. And so if you ever hear that vitamin D doesn't work for flu and whatever else, I go to high dose D for treatment of flu. 5,000 to 10,000 units of D is a preventive dosage meant to help with immunomodulation, gut health, gut microbiome interactions, uh, so many things that vitamin D does. And it's one of the most important nutrients in our body. And just as a very brief aside, we just don't make enough vitamin D, even if we're getting out in the sun. It's a very toxic world. Take vitamin D, even if you 
paddleboard all day long. Okay. Um, and so, and get your levels checked if you think, um, but worrying about taking too much is one of the last things because that we should worry about because there's studies using hundreds of thousands of units of vitamin D daily um, in patients with multiple sclerosis and other conditions showing, you know, our, our complete safety at levels that go well past 100 people, um, which is usually listed as toxic on the um, the lab slip that your doctor might get. Um, and, you know, there's no reason to shoot for over 100 on average. Uh, but yes, the 5,000 units of vitamin D to 10,000 is a pretty normal intake for all the things that vitamin D does, which is way past calcium metabolism and bone health. Okay, so we got vitamin D, mm -hmm. K2. Mm -hmm. What Some else? Right. What else do we need to add into the mix? And, and just a, a little plug. I'm I'm just finishing up the seventh article on COVID, um, and I've done a vitamin D article as well. This is all in the last month or so um, on the website uh, middlepathmedicine.com. It kind of goes into depth, more depth even than what we're going to talk about even on our podcast. Um, this last article is going to be a summary of all the things to do preventively, as well as in a treatment mode for from an orthomolecular standpoint. Um, and so, so the key things, number one is going to be the vitamin D. Number two is going to be um, helping with your, um, your gut microbiome by taking either um, by either making your own fermented foods, if you do so already, and or taking probiotics. Okay. So uh, I like orthobiotic. I like uh, the the forms of probiotics from you know some of the good companies and rotating them monthly. I, that's one of the things I tell people to do on a basic nutritional health. Anyways, helping our gut microbiome is one of the most important things we can do for our overall systemic health. Um, probably everybody out there knows something like 70 to 80 percent of your lymphatic tissue surrounds the gastrointestinal tract. That's the main place where your body is fighting off things, so to speak, because of the epidemic leaky guts and all the things going on, which is, again, I know that's the, the, their own podcast. Um, but if we can do things to help our gut microbiome, vitamin D to prevent leaky gut, um, healthy probiotics to prevent pathogens from landing into our lymphatic system, we're doing a lot to boost our immune system just right there. I recommend a beta-glucan called Holmune. Um, beta-glucans are in the family of mushrooms and things, so there's many good beta-glucans. The one I recommend is called Holmune. Take one a day. Um, that's a, a generalized immune booster that's been shown to help prevent respiratory infections. And this is another thing. When I said immune booster, it's actually been shown to decrease allergic disease. Okay, so once again, even when I use the term immune boosting, that's kind of the way people think about it. But this holmune really is an immune modulator, boosting your body's responses to viruses, decreasing the body's response to allergens. Is that, that something similar to like Stamets 7, the mushroom? Stamets 7 would be a very good example. Okay, of okay good. I'm already doing that. I feel like I'm on the right road here. <laughs> Stamets 7 is a combination of seven um, fungi, oh, sorry, mushrooms. <laughs> um, the uh, that uh, a very good uh, um, supplement company called Host Defense. Um, the Stamet 7 is kind of this general immune boosting protocol. Main reason it's obviously more complicated than this, folks, but the main way that the, the mushrooms work is through these beta glucan stimulated um, uh, boosting to our immune system functions. So, Stamet 7 would be a great example of something like whole immune. And so, um, do that. Vitamin C, folks, vitamin C, you know, most people are the only ones that don't make their own vitamin C. So under stress, we should take more vitamin C. So my generic recommendation for people is take 1,000 milligrams three times a day of vitamin C. I think that's a great preventative and shows some evidence that it could be preventative against this virus becoming more severe. Um, so that's another great thing okay, to question. do. Okay, question. 1,000 milligrams vitamin C three times a day, any specific form or particular brands that you like? Great. Because... Um, you know, we always talk about balance and nutrients. So I use this one called Systemic C. There's another one called Astra C. We have another one called Biofizz. But um, but they're basically going to be um, buffered C. So they're not in the acidic form. They're buffered forms of vitamin C in conjunction with their bioflavonoids. Um, so Systemic C, Astra C are two of my favorites that are commercially available basically everywhere. Um, and the reason I prefer those, because many people wonder why I don't use more liposomal vitamin C, is because most of the liposomal vitamin C forms don't have the bioflavonoids with them. And there's 
only a one or two companies where liposomal C truly is absorbed better than standard vitamin C. So I'm using C with the bioflavonoids because that's a synergistic formula. Um, the way we want to look at vitamin C is it's a, it's a one player in a host of other nutrients. C found in nature, whether it's an orange or a lemon or whatever else is, has a myriad of other bioflavonoids that work together with the C to make it function better. So the people out there are very much against vitamin C on its own. I can understand that. But vitamin C is a super important nutrient because all of us primates um, really actually uh, need extra vitamin C under stress. And I'd, I would say this is a stressful time. <laughs> so we so. can we can do that protocol of vitamin C for the next few months while we're all sort of like, you know, in a little bit of fear. And that might be great? Is it harmful to do it longer term than that? Is it like... I don't see you can do forever. Okay. okay. I mean, I just, it's just not toxic. Now there's some people, everybody out there, when we make these recommendations, I have, I have a gazillion patients over the course of the last few decades. And I, I know that people can react to anything. Um, so, so if you take something and don't feel well, then I would not take that. And whether that's eating blueberries or taking vitamin C, listen to your body. Um, a doc like me can at best give you general recommendations of very good things to try, but of course we have to listen to our own bodies. Some people swear they can't tolerate more than 500 milligrams of vitamin C at a time. Then I wouldn't take more than 500 milligrams. Um, and so please always listen to your bodies. Uh, um, I'm never asking anybody to do differently. But also the, the stuff that I'm telling you is really well-founded. Um, should we be doing things to boost our immune system in a time of a pandemic? Hmm, that doesn't seem like a big question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no, no. no. I, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, it seems reasonable, actually, if you think about it. Why are all the World Health Organizations and the CDCs anti any of these supplements is because they're all owned by Big Pharma. And I, I know you don't want me to get to, I'm not trying to be too political. I no, just, no, but it's not political. It's just true. They're all owned by big pharma and any hint that something natural might help you is going to, you know, start you down that slippery slope of thinking you might not eat a drug to solve every problem in your life. Um, and so, of course, they're telling you not to take these things. I, I think most of the people who are promoting agendas against vitamin D or against elderberries or against other things really are just part of either somebody duped into working for the, the pharmaceutical industry or are actually part of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so, so yes, we all have to take charge of our own health because, you know, when we get to vaccines, they're going to be very clear that the, the motivation for, you know, drugs and, and, and vaccines is a financial one, not really trying to help human health. And so that's why we all have to take charge of our own health. And if there's anybody who knows that it's you, of course, I'll, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> how about, how about, uh, I'm freaking tired of taking charge of my own health. No, hey, look, I'd love to just hand this over to someone. I mean, thank God I have you as my doctor, but you know, it's just, you know, I get it. And, and that's the message actually that we've always been saying is you have to be your own advocate. You have to get in there. You can't just rely on someone with like some Harvard degree to, to throw your health into their hands and say, help me, although right. they can be a part of it. Um, okay. So aside from the things we've talked about that are general, like, okay, hey, these are the things you can add into your life. Um, what about algae? What about uh, spirulina, chlorella, some other things that people are mentioning along the way um, in immune you know, boosting? I think most people need uh, to get their phytonutrients through their food. Humans in general don't eat algae. Do I recommend algae to most people? No. Okay. Um, now, do I think it's harmful? No. But do I think it's as helpful as people want it to be? No. And so that being stated, um, uh, I take green supplements that sometimes have some algae in them just because they're part of the, the other formulas that are there with that's usually during the winter time when I'm, when, when my garden isn't kicking in, um, and I'm not going to the local farmer's market as much cause I'm just not. Um, and so, uh, but is that a key part of it? You know, because, you know, the, I have this basic nutritional protocol people, well, if you're breathing, you're going to be on a good multivitamin. The one I use the most is called maximum vitality two twice a day. Good fish oils, the one I use the most is called Orthomega, two pills once a day. And this is building stress hardiness, which is true for everybody, even when there isn't a pandemic. So I would be doing these things. And by the way, also taking CoQ10, um, CoQ10, 200 to 300 milligrams a day. CoQ10 is, should be its own. We should have our own little podcast about CoQ10, by the way. Um, but that's another nutrient depleted by env environmental toxicity, important for mitochondrial function. Those three things, along with the probiotics we already mentioned and the D3K2 combinations are things I recommend to everybody and just as a general healthy basic nutritional protocol. And so 
Um, now you can add things that, like if you aren't eating enough good phytonutrients and ha- you know salads, uh, uh, veggies, etc. Um, then doing a green supplement has has some validity, I think. Okay. What about, um, all right. So what about melatonin? Cause I heard you say that like, okay, I've heard you say that, listen, like cancer patients can take, like you would, if you had a cancer patient, you, you would probably give them a higher dosage of it, but that this could be something that could be used if you started to feel sick or should it be taken preventatively? I know you feel like it's such a good part of anti-aging and health and it is. How do we look at melatonin right now if we're not taking it? Right. And that's where I was going to go in terms of it, because you add two other components to the preventative thing, which is for the the one is for general purposes. So um, just so everybody knows, melatonin is a hormone that most people think about for sleep. OK, um, how and it does help with the sleep process. Um, melatonin production in the human body from age 20 to age 50 drops by 50 percent by 70 is nearly zero. And so I cannot emphasize enough that that loss of melatonin with age is one of our biggest built in mechanisms of obsolescence. It's actually true that all species, animal and plant melatonin is the number one stress hardiness hormone present. Okay. So, um, I recommend, I used to recommend to people just take five milligrams of a a sustained release melatonin after the age of 50. Um, because there's so much evidence that melatonin would be the, the, probably the next most important thing compared to vitamin D in terms of helping with the immune system function. And I'm recommending anybody from age 35 to 60 to take five milligrams a night, anybody over 60 to take 10 milligrams a night. Um, and then if they do get signs of an illness to boost to 20 or even 40 milligrams, if they can tolerate it, which I'll get to in a second. And so why is this? There's type one and two melatonin receptors in every cell of the human body. Melatonin's role has to do with a general health maintenance thing called programmed cell death and mitochondrial function. Very important things with age. Part of the reason we see such problems with immune system, this overage age 75 thing, um, is because of loss of melatonin. And replacing melatonin in the face of cancer, like you were talking about, well, I brought up earlier too, um, and in the face of this pandemic is an enormously important thing for everybody to be doing. Um, the side effects of melatonin, when you start taking them, you can get vivid dreaming, everybody. So, And if you're prone to nightmares, you can get nightmares if you start melatonin. It's actually a pretty clear indication that you need it because it means you're getting more rapid eye movement sleep called REM sleep, um, which is associated with dreaming. That side effect will go away. Um, and so, and I just want to chime in and say that even though five milligrams is very low, I personally had the feeling totally hung over and hit like a brick when I woke up in the morning. So I had to go try one milligram. So, you know, and there are even lower doses than that for children and stuff. Right. So, so again, I just, I want to throw that out there because I'm a person who did not do well with the five milligram. And so there might be someone out there that might need to start lower. If you're feeling weird about it, you know, you could just start lower, right. And see how you do build up. Right. It's, it's funny because if you had, you know, one thing to give a loved one who's especially getting chemotherapy or radiation therapy for cancer, it would be 20 milligrams of melatonin nightly, which have been shown to double the response rate to chemotherapy and radiation therapy, double survival rates. Um, and, and it's one of the things that nobody is on for whatever reason, even though this is in our Western medical literature. Um, it's funny that you said that I had a patient the other day and the, and the, basically the wife was treating the husband who happened to have have, uh, uh, colon cancer. And she goes, no, the right dosage of melatonin is 140 milligrams a day. Um, he was already on 40 milligrams in the morning and a hundred at night. And and he was just kind of going along because I I think anything his wife was giving him, he would just keep taking, which I thought was, (laughs) and he had no side effects, but that was kind of funny. Um, uh, and folks, by the way, I'm not recommending 140 milligrams. I just thought it was really funny that the lady thought that my dosage, 20 milligrams was way too low. Um, and so this dosage of melatonin for general purposes is meant for prevention. I think all of you people know that when I talk about these these nutrients, they need to be on board should you be exposed to things. And I give the example, if you need an armored car before the IED goes off in, in Iraq or wherever. So the way I think of these nutrition, the nutrients, the probiotics, the melatonin, the vitamin C, the beta-glucans, etc., these are all meant to be there to help your body fend off things. There's going to be days where you don't need it. Thank heavens. Okay. Um, and so 
So you do all these things on a regular basis, your overall stress hardiness will be better. But melatonin probably is right there with vitamin D in terms of being the most important therapies that we could consider. All this stuff is, of course, going to be on my articles at Middle Path Medicine. Um, and there's, by the way, one other thing you mentioned. If I was going on a plane trip and I could get one of the IV Myers cocktails, which is an IV with 10 grams of vitamin C um, and some supportive nutrients, if I had to go to a, a high-risk exposure like that, I would do an IV before I went, you know, to the hospital if, if for we, any reason. If we to, couldn't do the IV, but we were about to get on a plane, would we just follow the immune boosting protocol that you, you have, which is... I would do that of acute viral protocol, a treatment protocol, and I would do at least one dosage of that protocol before I got on the plane. Yes. Right. Okay. So now, by the way, that's that's on your website, the acute viral protocol. It's, it's vitamin C, D, and a product called Viracid. Uh, right. Question. So I think that protocol is about three days, right? Well, the D you do for three days, you, the C and the virus that you can do for seven to 10 days. Um, for some people, because this is a longer lasting infection, I'm having them do it for the, the full length of time they're having the symptoms, which is averaging about two weeks. And I only have a few patients who've been um, infected by the COVID um, but and and none of them have have actually gotten IVs by the way just because of locale and costs and some other things. But they've done well with this protocol. That doesn't prove that it works. By the way, it just means it's a good thing to do. Um, and it's a protocol that I've been using for many many years now. I think at least ten years or so with great effects in dealing with any respiratory illness. And and my impression is that it'll work with this one as well too to at least minimize the symptoms of the illness. Okay. So just to be clear, so. If, three to seven day protocol roughly during this time, but let's say I'm about to get on a plane. When do I start that protocol? Two days before I get on the plane, the day before I get oh, on no. the plane? I would just actually do a dose even the morning that I got was going to get on the flight and just do one and dose. If going. it's a long flight, I'd do a couple of doses, you know, long flight meaning cross country or of course international. Okay. Um, and so, and just do it. And a then just continue for like yeah. a week after or something. No, I'd actually just take it. If I was doing it preventatively, remember, yes. I would be doing the vitamin D, 50,000 units, three times a day for three days. If I had any symptoms suggesting a cold, the virus in the C I would be doing for basically as long as I had symptoms, whether that's seven to 10 days. If I was doing it preventatively because I couldn't get an IV, I would be getting on the plane. And the morning of getting on the plane, I would just take one of the uh, 50,000 unit of D, two viruses in a C. Um, and maybe, and of course I would have it with me if I, um, sure. thought I was getting sick or anything else like that, but I would just do one dosage as a preventive, which I think is a very smart thing to do, especially in today's world. By the way, that's a smart thing to do long before coronavirus became so, uh, I'd do it anyway before I get, <laughs> I, I do it anyways as well. Exactly. Okay. And so just wanted to clear uh -huh. that up. All right. Let's get into the, okay. So we did a whole entire podcast on vaccines. Right. So anybody can go look at that. But let's talk and get into the weeds about this potential vaccine that's coming in because there's so many people that are like, I'll just wait. I can't wait till the vaccine comes out and then I'm going to get that vaccine. Because of what I know, I'm weary of that. I'm the person that's like, I don't want to fuck. Like, I don't know that I would want that. Um, let's well, talk about this because I think people are looking at this as like the holy grail of like, this will save me in this world. As long as that comes out, I'll just get the vaccination. Uh. Yeah, that, that, uh, so keeping this relatively simple, you notice that, remember, this is the third novel coronavirus that we've talked about. There were SARS-CoV-1 and MERS. And if, I don't know if you guys have realized there's no vaccine for those. And it's not because there wasn't a financial incentive to, but focusing on SARS-CoV-1, which was the first one calling, causing severe acute respiratory um, syndrome, it never made it past animal trials because each and every one of the vaccines independent of adjuvant led to high rates of lung damage in the animals that were tested. Okay. Oh, damn. So, so even, so, so the reason it never came out is because it couldn't even get past the animal trials because it was it just so sketchy. Past the animal so, trial, so, trial. so are you saying, so basically it's like, it's not likely this one's going to freaking work either. Well, it's highly likely that it won't work. And unfortunately, that doesn't mean necessarily that the data won't be hidden. And then they'll, because, you know, Bill Gates wants it to give it to 7 billion people, right? <clears throat> and only because he just loves people. Um, sorry. Um, but no, there's a huge financial incentive to vaccinations. And 
And once again, um, you know, if no, any- the CDC is a research and vaccination money-making machine that is right. totally clear. And, and here's the thing. Let's be very clear. You're not mm-hmm. anti-vaxxer overall. There are some times where it's possible. But also, right. tell us about the time where you had to fall on your own sword. You used to love vaccin- <laughs> vaccines when you were a young doctor. You thought they were the greatest thing in the world until... Right. And tell us about that, because I want people to understand your perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, tell us about that change of um, philosophy for you as a doctor. Well, the thing is, folks, is that, you know, uh, we all learned as MDs, what what did we learn about vaccines? And it's basically how to give them (laughs) and and following the schedule. And this is why we do it. It It's the greatest thing in the world. We cured polio. And by the way, that's not true through the vaccine. Polio vaccines themselves have led to epidemics of uh, uh, from chronic fatigue to, and really are certainly part of even the HIV and the Ebola crises. So I wanna be very clear how vaccines are manufactured, for whether it's using the aborted fetal tissues, using mouse tissues and us getting retroviruses. I could go on and on and on about the, the issues with vaccines. So once you realize that all the these vaccines include adjuvants of aluminum, preservatives, including some of them have these things, by the way, aluminum, then mercury. They also have, you're exposing yourself to antibiotics and to cell-free DNA. So this is the other thing is that there is so much um, contamination from the vaccines themselves. You're exposing yourself to human DNA, which has um, uh, been uh, altered by the course of how we make the vaccines. So you're, which by the way, is increasing your risk long-term of cancer. So if you understood vaccines, you would really be dubious about when you would give them. Um, and so uh, the the reason most doctors aren't dubious is because they have never looked at them. Okay, so why do the pediatricians just give the vaccine schedule? By the way, there's huge financial incentives for them to keep you on the schedule, so they make money out of it. Um, and there's, they. It, once doctors recognize the amount of harm they've caused from these vaccines, they are going to feel really horrible about themselves. And so I don't think they want to know. Um, so when we go into this idea also is that you um, the entire thought of vaccination is how to disempower people, that your immune system just sucks. These viruses are out to kill you and your children. Um, thank God doctors are here to make vaccines for you. Um, we will save you. OK, and so uh, and now that most people have bought into that narrative, they don't even look at these things. They get the flu vaccine every year, even though that's been proven not to be effective. Let me, by the way, the latest article, I just want to bring up a very simple statistic that hopefully makes it clear to you how much these vaccines are marketed. They've shown that because everybody hears that the the influenza A and B kill somewhere between 36,000. That's the people per year. That's the the narrative that the CDC uses and up to 70,000 some year. Every single year, the actually documented influenza virus deaths is somewhere around 1,300. That's 1,300 people per year, okay? Um, Why do they use the number 36,000? They just tell you that, well, all the pneumonias in the world and everything else, they're just caused by influenza. We know it anyways, even though there's no scientific proof that it does it. And so some dials of like pneumonia that just go, oh, it's probably flu related without without testing and actually confirming that it was the flu. And that the actual documentation is flu as cause of death is usually around 1,300 people per year, okay, 1,300. Um, so uh, the so the, that wouldn't sell the vaccine. What would sell is 36,000 people or 70,000 people a year. Everybody dies, 400, you know, all these things are just lies that the government tells us to try to make sure we get a vaccine because people make money getting vaccines. Um, nothing to do with herd immunity, nothing to do with preventing viral transmission, nothing nothing to do with anything but one basic issue, which is make sure people stay afraid of the environment, whether it's influenza or anything else, and get vaccines. So that's gonna, that's gonna translate into this current crisis where people are the most afraid ever where a vaccine will be rushed into um, into the general public without any safety trials, because there's going to be no double-blind placebo-controlled trials here, because it's a it's an urgency, so we can push things through, and we'll get a vaccine that's highly untested. And be very clear: the entire vaccine history against these novel coronaviruses has been horrible Clearly in terms a of failure. Safety. Yeah, absolute failure. A true failure. 
So, and then of course, they might mandate to the point of saying, gosh, you must get these vaccines or you can't go back out into the community. So we need to talk about testing and other things, by the way, Elle. Um, and so, so I, am I counting on a vaccine working? No, I mean, I sure hope so. I mean, Elle, I, again, back to my core of Western medicine, if we found a safe vaccine that I truly, if I tested negative for coronavirus, and I thought the vaccine was safe, I will be the first person on your podcast telling everybody to get it. The odds of that happening, I think, is less than 1% chance that it could occur. Okay. Okay. That says a lot. All right. You know, so, um, so please, people, don't count on, on a vaccine. Take care of yourself. Boost your immune system function. Um, most all of us are going to get exposed over the course of the next year and a half. Okay. Um, and so uh, we'll develop our own natural herd immunity that way. Okay. Um, and then we'll have to look at the few remaining people who have high risks of, of infection and vaccinating them. But what's actually going to happen is they're going to try to mandate everybody, even if you have antibodies to get this vaccine. And that's when we will need true civil disobedience, not these Sorry, I was going to use colorful language. Not these people who um, <laughs> are protesting social distancing and basic common human distance, uh, decency. So, um, you know, so. No, uh, I, I'd fight that one tooth and nail if anyone required me to get right. that. Yeah, that's not going to yeah. work out for and most, so we'll most to, people. We'll yeah. have to wait and see because if you do see a mandated vaccine in the future, you'll know we've really truly gone to the, the dark side. Um, and so, uh, but we'll all have to look and see what the safety of this is. I I hope that a good vaccine comes out, but just very unlikely that it will. Okay, so not relying on that. Let's talk about, um, all right, let's talk about testing for a second. So is, is the following unknown? It seems as though it is. Let's say I got, there was a legit antibody test. And they yeah. tested me. And it was like, oh, you must have had it. You didn't know. You had a headache one day, whatever, right? I have no symptoms. Okay. So, um, and but it says I have the antibodies. That means that I was exposed, right? But right. we don't know if it is preventative against being reinfected, do we? Um, there is great evidence that it is, that we is are that it, prevented against getting reinfection. Okay. Is that, is that true? The because the other novel coronaviruses you, also had that same thing. Like if you got SARS one or whatever, or the, you know, the MERS, right. was it, was it that case there where if you had the antibodies, you were good to go? Well, um, well, yes, but as you know, the infectivity rate for the SARS one and for MERS, you know, well, first of all, the mortality rate was high. So surviving that, that was a good one. Um, <laughs> and then, but, you know, so that was the first step. Um, and then, um, you know, so, so when we got past that, yes, it was protective. That's, that's the long and short of it. Um, and, uh, not everybody. So, um, covering immunity, um, people who there is a condition called a gamma globulinemia. That's a childhood condition where you just don't make globulins. They actually can respond to vaccines, actually become immune, even though they don't make antibodies. Okay. So I want to be clear. Anybody who tells you that making antibodies is equivalent to being immune, that's actually been shown to be untrue. There's many ways you can become immune to something. Now, um, so that's how they sell vaccines, by the way, that you create antibodies, therefore you're immune. It's by the way, not also not true that if you have antibodies, you are immune. And so Gary, you're just being confusing. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, what I'm trying to tell you is that the natural immunity that we get to this virus, um, will be uh, protective for us in the future. Now, Gary, how do you know that it won't mutate in some way? I don't. We'll have to keep an eye on that. So, um, but if it does mutate in some way, the vaccine that they just created won't work either. That's right. Okay? That's right. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, and so we'll have to have to track this over a course of time. Um, you know, so so on that order, the way to approach this for everybody, because you know, there was just a release. So it was just a, a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine where they just did a serial. Um, every single woman who came in for a delivery, uh, they're pregnant, they're coming in for a delivery. Um, they they just tested every one, woman consecutively. It was 215 consecutive women in a New York hospital. And the interesting part is four women had symptoms consistent with fever and each and every one of them, four out of four, had, had the SARS-CoV-2, okay? Here's the other part. The other 211 women... 29 with no symptoms whatsoever actually were tested positive um, for the coronavirus, meaning they would be spreading the virus without knowing it. Okay. So, and that comes out to 13.7% of healthy pregnant women in New York City right now are shedding the virus. Okay. Now, that's a huge amount of people actually 
being positive. Okay, and I'm not saying that applies to everybody because this was actually a healthier population, uh, you know, so young pregnant women. Um, and so so on that order, very high rates of positivity in almost anybody walking around. Now, this was in New York City. So, of course, this rate will change in different places. But the asymptomatic rate, meaning four four or four people who had um, symptoms, um, 29 of 211 um, that didn't means that 88% of people in this study were asymptomatic. Okay. Um, and so, as you know, there's such debate. What is the, the asymptomatic rate in this country? Is it 25%? Well, in this one, you know, very brief, small study, it was 88%. So the fact is, many of us have been exposed and don't know it. So um, the current... Now, is that also possible that we've been exposed, don't know it, and don't have antibodies to prove on a test that we've been exposed, but we still somehow, our body either said, kicked it to the curb immediately, or it came in and our body said, nope, not happening? Like what... So yes, there are going to be people who have a nat- natural immunity the, the, against other coronaviruses. So yes, even though it's a novel coronavirus, that they're good at kicking out this virus, their innate immunities are so good. But here's the deal. The vast majority of people and, and basically now um, China has its issues from a governmental standpoint, et cetera. But it does seem something like it, when you recover from this virus, a good 95 to 99 percent of people are making antibodies. OK, okay. so I'm going to tell people is that for the vast majority of people who are immune, you will have evidence of antibodies. So this is how we should look at testing. Anybody in this country who has any symptom, a cold like fever, like whatever, should have, and by the way, I just recommend what we do in our office is we do a, we go out to their car and wear protective gear. We do a nasal swab that tests for all respiratory viruses and including COVID-19. Okay. So anybody with symptoms gets tested. That's the way it should be everywhere in the country. Yep. Okay. Now, if you don't have symptoms, um, what we'll have you do is just wear a mask when you come into the office. And again, very soon, we've ordered test kits. I don't know when they're coming in, but they'll just do a finger stick test and they'll have IgM. IgM is the acute antibody and IgG antibodies. And within 10 or 15 minutes, we'll have a result. They'll either be negative, okay, meaning no antibodies at all. Those people, for the time being, we're going to assume are not immune because the majority will not be immune to coronavirus. If you are IgM positive, meaning the acute antibody is present, then we'll actually do testing with the swab to make sure you're not currently one of the asymptomatic spreaders. If you're IgG positive, but not IgM positive, then you're going to be immune. And, you know, I don't know if we're going to just make little buttons to wear on their things. I am COVID immune (laughs) and have them go out into the world, but it's going to be something like that because we do want people getting back safely, safely people out into the real world um, and knowing that people can recover and get over this and go back to normal life functioning. And so and so that's the way we're going to handle it in our office. These finger stick tests will be available. There's a, several very good companies, uh, Biomedomics, doesn't matter the names of the companies. Your doctor should know who to check for so they don't get any of these bogus tests that, that um, you know, the New York Times just did an article on this. But um, so there's ways to avoid that, that um, problem. Um, but uh, and so we and this is a clear people. Every single one of us should be tested out. Um, that's 100% of all Americans. And by the way, and then if you're negative, we're going to have to test you down the road to make sure, you know, so the the requirements for testing is going to be enormous, but we'll find that more and more people becoming immune that will get back into our normal functioning safely um, because we know that we're immune and that's how we'll get past the other side of this. Until which time that kind of testing is available in our country, then no, we're going to need to practice the social distancing slash social solidarity. Solidarity, um, and uh, because that's what it means. I, again, I just this hey, can idea. I, can that, I can I borrow one of your pets, <laughs> Gary? Yeah, <laughs> like I, I need to snuggle. It's like like I finally had like I ran into a Great Dane on a walk the other day, and I was like, oh my god, finally I get. <laughs> Yeah, no, they have those long leashes, the ones that pull out from the things. You can visit the dogs, even if you're keeping distance from the people. So that's what we do all the time, by the way, is we're on a little part, walks with Leo, and we're visiting all the dogs as people kind of go off. Oh, I lost you there. Rather talk to the dogs anyways. Um, okay, um, no, no, that's a joke. Okay, so, okay, this, uh, yeah, all right, so this yeah. antibody testing is going to be... Yes. 
Interesting. Gonna, so I can finally eat bats after I get that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You can eat as many bats as you want. Bat soup for everybody. Um, we're kidding. We're kidding out there. Um, and so, uh, but yes, uh, and just one note on that in terms of, yeah, it's been common human decency since the inception of civilization that if we had something like this, we would do social distancing. We wouldn't even need a government edict to do it. Okay. It would be called common human decency. So there's a group of people out there that think it's fascist to 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 actually have people take care of each other. <laughs> and it's the exact opposite of the truth. What would be fascist is running out around and without masks and trying to infect everybody. Uh, um, you know, so I, I don't understand the, the thought processes of those people. Um, I do think a lot of people have just been so swayed away from the truth. That's that's so tough for them to see. I do want everybody to get back and well, and we do the testing that's necessary. And I think everybody knows our country has failed every parameter in terms of testing because we're per capita, we're still among the Western countries, the worst in the world, not among every country. Um, and so and that is really uh, the key for us to get back in, in action to, and also to decrease it, our fears. I'd be so much more fearless if I knew yes, I was exactly. already exposed and had um, you know, the antibodies. I mean, like I said, I would be eating bat soup, but I would feel a lot better about life. Um, let me ask you one more thing about, um, okay. So I had read that there was a connection here. I know you're a fan of selenium for a variety of reasons. Right. Is there a connection with this with selenium? I heard like maybe taking selenium now, if you're not is helpful with this and that it has something to do with the lungs and this virus attaching itself to some lung. I, I, Clear up any connection there if there is any. The Scandinavian countries focus on, so CoQ10 and selenium as being synergistic nutrients from with anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. As you well know, we recommend selenium. Um, it, it actually works as a, a mild chelator of heavy metals. It's a, it is an antioxidant. It is a precursor for um, glutathione peroxidase, uh, helping your body generate glutathione. It is a wonderful nutrient that we use primarily to decrease autoantibody um, thyroid antibody and other autoantibody formation, as well as improving um, uh, thyroid function, reverse T3. Decreasing, re decreasing reverse T3, increasing free T3. So um, the hint is that, um, you know, that from a standpoint of um, CoQ10, which are, and, and selenium together would probably help prevent the the cytokine storm. There really isn't enough evidence yet for me. Um, selenium is one of the most common nutrients I use. Um, so 200 micrograms a day for, of selenium. By the way, a good multivitamin. So why do I recommend a multivitamin to everybody? Because yeah, it has... It has carotenoids and vitamin A, which is very important for immune system function. It's going to have close to 100 to 200 micrograms of selenium. It'll have somewhere around 30 milligrams of zinc that everybody's hearing about. Um, and so it'll provide these supportive nutrients. That's why a good multivitamin is supposed to do. So you're not opening up 28 bottles of pills a day. Um, and so, um, you know, so, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so. And, and so when it comes to supplement things, that's where the good multi kind of fills in all these nutrients that are such good supportive things that your body knows what to do with and will excrete them if it doesn't need them. So, so you guys might have wondered why didn't Gary tell everybody about taking zinc? And the answer is a good multi has enough zinc. Okay. From an immune system function standpoint, that's where the zinc would end. Um, selenium is a great nutrient, but is it up to the level of the other ones uh, in terms of importance for me? And the answer is not yet. Okay. Of course, it could be wrong. Okay. All right. So we could talk about this all day, but in in closing, I mean, I think you've given some like travel, uh-oh, I have to go out into the world, some pre preventative, um, and then in general, just an overall immune uh, modulating sort of protocol here with these supplements right. and being very weary down the road mm -hmm. of a vaccine. But like you said, I think people are banking a lot of hopes on this. And from what you've said about those other coronaviruses, it doesn't sound like this vaccine's going to work. It's, it's highly unlikely that a safe vaccine will come from this because we haven't had success with the first two. Um, the fact that this one is being pushed through and they're saying that by August, we're going to have a vaccine wreaks me extraordinarily afraid of how bad it might, might be. Um, because when you hear the, because when we take care of ourselves, people, if you do the things that we've been talking about, this is just another virus your body's going to face. 
Okay. Um, and so can I, can I, I'm going to give a brief story. Um, you know, uh, little Leo had a bug a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, since mention I who little Leo is, <laughs> Oh, little Leo's are my 22 month old at home, by the way. Um, um, and so, uh, and, and no, he has not gotten a single vaccine yet. Okay. Um, but, and we'll, we'll judge that as time goes on and data comes on by the way. Um, and so, but, but he brought home a little bug the, you know, this is a few weeks ago in the middle of all this. So I waited, I did my nasal swab to test myself. And sure enough, I have this thing called metanumavirus. Metanumavirus is just, you know, a virus that was discovered in 2001, by the way, I actually knew it existed, but almost knew nothing about it, you know? So, so I look up all the research on it and, you know, this virus actually in one um, case, uh, case control cell went through a nursing home and had a 50% mortality rate. Okay. Now, uh, and I, I want to emphasize there's so many viruses out there that can can knock off people who are not very healthy. OK, it was just another cold virus. And most of us in Leo is a little cold virus in me. I took my viral protocol and I was I had very minimal symptoms, but I could tell I had something. Um, and so I didn't see any patients in, in process in uh, in person until I had my negative covid uh, uh, back, by the way. Um, and so. But it's something in the past I would have never even known. I would have never even tested myself to find on this respiratory panel what virus was causing my symptoms. And, and so um, and it was just a nothing virus. But in certain populations, it wouldn't be a nothing virus. That's what we're talking about with coronavirus right now, folks, is that there's a lot of viruses out there. Um, the, the the number one cause of hospital hospitalizations and mortality in our country from a respiratory virus standpoint, by, stand by the way, this is something everybody needs to hear, is actually rhinovirus. Rhinovirus is the common cold virus. It actually kills more people in our country than influenza does. Okay. Now, why, do, why are you not afraid of rhinovirus? And the answer is because there's no vaccine for it. Okay. So... What's happened out there is uh, we have an entire population of people who've learned to live in fear, think that the only thing that will work for them is a vaccine or a viral drug, okay, which there aren't that many of, um, and we've disempowered ourselves. And so, um, and that all we need to do is take good care of ourselves. And yes, when we're feeling sick, we should take some days off uh, from a decent social standpoint anyways, okay? Yeah, I just um, want to, I want to give a, I'm going to give a, a rant for one second, which is for those people out there that roll into your offices kind of sick, stop it. This has to stop moving forward. I know so many people that get sick every year because, you know, Sally keeps coming in with this. You know, Sally needs to stay home when she's sick. And I hope that after this whole thing, people get shamed on that. Like, literally, like, don't come into the effing office and now give everyone else the flu or whatever it is. Like, that has to stop. And I'm hoping if any positive lesson comes from this epidemic, you know, pandemic, that it's that. Like right. it, it, that has to stop. People are, have been doing too much of that. And I think after this, people, you know, won't, you know, people are too afraid to speak up in an office. They don't want to make Sally feel bad. Well, you know what? I think after this, maybe people, HR should get on Sally. People need right. to stay home. So, you know, that's the one thing that we can do. Um, you know, it's, it's never, it's always disconcerting when you're at the gym and in the steam room and someone's coughing, you're like, are you effing kidding me? Like that better be right. hay fever. You know what I mean? So, so we just, we have to be more mindful that way. And I'm hoping that that stuff stops because people still do that. They've been doing it forever. And I'm thinking maybe this pandemic might be yeah. enough shame, you know what I mean? To stop right. people from doing that. Absolutely. Because that's the whole thing. This is, I think what's hopefully waking up now. I do look forward in the future when there isn't anything going around. We should all hug again, again. I want to emphasize this idea that we'll never do handshakes again or whatever else. That's living in fear, okay? Um, for right now, when there's a, something going on that there's a lot of people having issue, it's basic human decency to, I just do namaste with people, uh, um, you know, don't do not do any handshaking right now. But I'm not saying we should never handshake in the future. Now, that being stated, if I thought I had a bug, I shouldn't be handshaking people. I'll just do my namaste, and that'll be my greeting to people and look them in the eye and let them know that we're connecting at a deeper level. Um, we should all hug again and all these other things. The living in fear thing is what's been selling people. Um, it's, you know, why we have the current president is people are afraid and they wanted somebody who was strong. That was that ended up funny. Um, and so 
And we're all living in fear and we're looking for that. So um, now we can look, get past us. All, almost all of us will. Um, and so, and we'll come out the other side and hopefully have a, a better understanding of nature. Because once again, the viruses and other bacteria of the world are not just little nemeses. They're educational systems for our immune system to help educate and help us live longer, healthier lives. And this idea that we that we're just fall victim to them, that we're we can never survive them or something without a vaccine or without a drug is just what's been sold to you over the last few decades extraordinarily effectively. Um, and and we've disempowered ourselves. And so so go out there and eat your paleo diet or your keto diet or your carnivore diet, but whatever your body responds best to and you get your exercise and you realize, yes, I'm going to still get colds. OK, because this idea that you don't get colds, not true. OK, some people are lucky they don't get many of them, but then you get bugs. And even this one, you'll just get and you'll get over and somewhere down the road, we'll find out that getting this coronavirus will decrease the rate of some lymphoma or some other cancer, because that's what that's what the viruses of the world provide for us is an education for our immune system. So we will live long, longer and healthier lives. OK. Um, and so that's why, again, I even though I'm very respectful of this virus, um, I really want everybody to know that, that that this is just a learning time for all of us. We need a wake up call. I wrote an article at the beginning of the year about the Renaissance. The uh, 2020 was the end of a 40 year cycle of really dark times in our country. And and any renaissance happens after a very turbulent period. And that's what we're in the middle of now. Um, and so it's, but it's a great, hopefully a great social awakening. Um, and this will lead to advancements in climate change and all kinds of other things where we see the world as our extended body, because it is folks. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. as we take care of ourselves, it's going to be a reflection of how we take care of all of the environment. And we'll realize, we'll wake up that, you know, the, you know, subsidies to oil companies and all these other things are really been part of the same force of darkness that, that has caused people to not see the deeper reality that how interconnected we all are. Yeah, that's well Sorry said. No, no, it's great. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for your wisdom, your opinions. And, uh, you know, if, uh, <laughs> If a vaccine ever does come out, we'll see what happens. We'll have you back on to, to talk about the studies behind it to make Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. I'll look at the studies and, you know, folks, because I, I can see things with a rational standpoint. If this comes out as being something safe, I will recommend it to people who aren't immune already, of course. So um, it's just statistically unlikely that we should be relying on it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Everybody, you can go to middlepathmedicine.com. Uh, Dr. Gary Forsman has lots of articles on all of these very aspects of varied aspects of COVID-19 and so much more. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to leave with us, sir? No, just I'm very hopeful for this time. And hopefully everybody out there can just... Uh this whatever life practices they've been wanting to do and things, uh, take them on. And yes, um, you know, watch some of your favorite you know, Netflix series, like, you know, certain people tell me to do. Um, and <laughs> like I was forcing you to watch Tiger King. I'm like, you have to watch Tiger King. <laughs> By the way, yes, anyone out there, if you haven't seen it, that's Tiger entertaining. King. I have to talk to her about this after the, after the podcast, but uh, she did get me to watch it. It was interesting. Anyways, <laughs> but you'll have some fun too. And then you realize that you can, just with a little shift in attention, we can accept about all this and realize that we really actually have it pretty darn good, even in the face of some of the limitations um, to our social functioning. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And everyone else, we'll see you next week on the podcast. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no-dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic 